when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Oh, hello. It's the Dews Day. It's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and, ent- and entertainment that's been inspiring it and provoking us lately. Don't give me that look, Patrick. Wouldn't but this week, Tuesday? we've got preseason we're favorite. It on a Tuesday. Okay. Yeah, Every well, day it's the Dews Day when we're recording, and oh, honestly, okay. you can make right. any day the Dews Day. I just thought, t- like, Tuesday, I thought Tuesday was the Dews Day, and it is a Tuesday, but this will go up on... Someday. With do, uh, with dudes, who knows? With dudes day. <laughs> <laughs> My dude's day. And guess what? My dude, it's Dudu. Is Dudu a linebacker? What position does Dudu play? Might be oh, a head rusher. Yeah. He he feels like either one of those really fast, uh, like, front three, front four guys. Yeah. Or, or he's a linebacker. a Calvin Johnson type. Maybe he's Ooh. just like, just like... Like a giant that also happens to be a receiver. Yeah, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to be that fast. He could literally just be like, just I'm taller jump. than everybody. <laughs> I, don't, I don't say that to, to diminish Calvin Johnson Calvin as an exceptional yeah, receiver. Yeah, yeah. And also links up with you know, a topic we're going to talk about today is someone that decided to say, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> what if not anymore? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that This week we were going to be sort of talking about our most problematic of faves because uh, mm-hmm. we've all got preseason fever here as we prepare for pro football to come back. Uh, gather around the table this week. You've already heard him. Patrick Klepek. Hello. Hello. Bear down. Austin Walker. I'm going to be very polite. Austin from Queens. From Queens. Austin awesome Queens. Queens, you're on hey the line. Hey guys, this is me. It's Austin. I just want to know this Antonio Brown guy. He makes millions of dollars. Why does he care what he puts on his face? For a million dollars, I will put a spider on my face. Cato, Cato, uh, we were screening Austin, right? <laughs> Wait, we I just think that? people like that. You know what I'm saying? People okay, like that. You. Don't I know how I got on the people. line. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, thank after you. The, uh, sir, uh, caller, yeah. uh, when you called in with your Spider-Man take last week, we told you. We told, Sir, we told you. God. Kata, you need to watch for, you need to watch that line and make sure Austin doesn't get through anymore. Hulk <laughs> used to be a beast. Not- <laughs> All right. Uh, so this week. It's funny, we were like, we've been sort of been talking about, we, we want to talk about football, and for a while we were going to like, let's do a deep dive on this frankly <laughs> underwhelming season of Hard Knocks, because uh, it was so good last year, but it is not as good this year, I would say. But then this week, uh, and Patrick, I think you were watching this game, um, in the middle of a Colts preseason game, word broke that their franchise quarterback, and possibly a generationally talented quarterback as well, Andrew Luck, was retiring. 
Yeah, he. Uh, so I actually wasn't watching. I forgot the game was on. It was my daughter's birthday, but I was sitting down to watch. <laughs> being a good reels, dad. Being yeah. a dad, but then I was like, "Hey, it's 11. I've got this uh, glass of scotch. Time to watch highlight reels from the, the fourth stringers of the Chicago Bears from this third preseason game because that's where I'm at right now." Um, and saw like a text message thread I had with some friends um, where we just talk shit about Chicago sports and. Everyone was like, Andrew Luck retired. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Because like, it was probably some sort of joke because he's been injured on and off over the years. And now he's 29 years old. I think it's hard uh, to put in perspective uh, sort of Andrew Luck when he came into the league. He, There are quarterbacks which people think could be good, have the potential to be great, um, are the kind of people that could maybe hit the ground running, maybe need some time. Andrew Luck was the sort of like, there's nothing wrong with him. He like, if you were to to step down from NFL heaven and like be delivered a prospect of like a football player, not only just like someone who's incredibly intelligent, but somebody that enjoys getting hit because he, I think, quote, it gets his juices flowing. Yeah. Like someone who liked to get sacked and then would compliment the people who sacked him and say, nice move. That, um, that video compilation is incredible, and people should look up the compilation of, of Andrew Luck getting sacked and then telling the defender that they made a good hit on him. They're yeah. like, oh, yeah, good hit. Good hit, big man. Like, well, he was a big right. enough dude. He could shrug yes. that off, yeah. too. Yes. Like, yes. he was – he was like, he's a bit like Cam Newton in that if you looked at him, he wouldn't look that physically imposing because he's just scaled up. Like, his proportions aren't sort of like – Unusual the way some football position players can look kind of like really rangy or really bulky. He's just a large man who could absorb pretty astonishing punishment and a bit like Cam as well. Maybe like was maybe too willing to absorb that punishment because early in his career, he he could sort of shrug it off. Yeah, and he's someone that uh, has had a, a history of injuries um, that I'm sure we'll get into are our, our, famously his talent allowed him to exceed the gross incompetence of their general manager and football general <laughs> managers is someone who like manages like the personnel, like separate from the the coach. Um, and he, they, they had an offensive line, you know, like those sort of the five dudes who are up front that are supposed to give the quarterback some measure of time before they release the ball or do something else with it. And luck just got hit. Um, I want to say like it was in his first season, he got hit something like 66 times, um, which was like, so far above like the league average, like just so far, like that, that, that number was always consistently very high. And he eventually had an injury that haunted him for a number of years, took him out for all of, I believe the 2016 uh, season. And uh, he had had this sort of lingering injury leading up into this season. And then two weeks before the season starts announces, uh, well, word leaks out um, from one of the NFL you know, sort of rumor mongers, uh, uh, Adam Schefter saying that uh, Andrew Luck is retiring. I guess there had been a, 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 some sort of news thing planned for the day after. And instead it was sort of like impromptu was happening that evening. Now that news was, was breaking out and fans were booing him as he was leaving, which then led into a press conference in which like a very somber, sad, clearly demoralized person revealed that years of injuries had created, uh, someone with like a profound, uh, they were dealing with like mental illness. He was depressed. Like he had been out his joy of the game had been sucked out and it had been sucked out of someone who was a quintessential talent, who was a, a man's man, football's guy, football's guy. And yet the game had been ruined for him. And he was like the last person you would have expected that would have 
you know, kind of thrown up the white flag and said, actually, I'm going to go find something else in life that makes me happy. Which is, is, you know, I think we've, we've kind of spoken about before when we talked about the NFL is the way in which to consume it as a spectator is to be complicit to some degree with the fact that the people playing it are limiting their lot, their future lives, right? That like every hit could be the hit. And we'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk about helmets. Um, any hit could be the hit uh, uh, that, that gives you brain damage that permanently changes your life. Um, and so for me, seeing the story, seeing Andrew be like, all right, I had a good run. I'm, I'm done. I, I like, I love this game, but I have to step back from it. Um, was like something I'm deeply sympathetic towards and something that I feel like we might see more of uh, in the future, right? Like, I think well, this, this is... I, this I think is we're, we're leading into a, an era yeah. in which you have players that care more about just football. I think you're seeing this among right. yes. younger yes. Uh, talent that is coming into the league. They are more worldly. This is part of like a, like a, a larger shift that's happening in football that is a, a, like a long-time reckoning that has been a largely conservative sport because of conservative white owners that have tamped down on the ability for players to sort of like think about act as though there is a world outside of football. You, you know, it's easy to look at something like the NBA, which is like the polar opposite of that, and st- which still there are lots of <laughs> conservative white owners. Yeah, but it yeah. is a league that is like more player driven, more diverse um, in terms of opinion that is like there's just players are more well-rounded. Part of this is like inherent to football. They wear helmets. It is harder to know people when you watch in the field and most of what you know about them is a number and numbers that are running around the screen, which is just fundamentally different than most other sports we watch. I think that does contribute to a large part of like a lack of like understanding of personality in football because they are wearing costumes to a degree that is just not true of other sports. We should be clear too. That is also partly by design because the NFL has such like rest- like such restrictions about where and when you can remove your helmet, right? Like they they've gone to great what you can to make put sure on that- your shoes, yeah. what yeah. you can put on your you know. There's just a there's just way you know. It's even just uh, some players. I think you can like not necessarily wear sleeves, but like it's not like you see like sort of like a sleeveless where then you could even see like the the tattoos, like even anything that would like represents the personality of a person. So much of that is erased because football historically as a sport has been, you grind. Like it's just football all day, every day, because it is a, it is an incredibly brutal sport to learn week to week to keep up, especially from like the quarterback position. And you look at, you know, the, uh, you know, the, someone who's held up as like the epitome of like, what is football? It's like a, a, you know, a quarterback like Tom Brady, who my problems with my deep problems with like the politics of numerous like members of the Patriots aside, like is someone who lives, breathes and will die by football until his body literally says like, you can't, you can't get up and do it anymore. Whereas Andrew Luck was someone admirably who said, this was my life. It has always been my life, but I can be more than this. And I, I choose to go find out what that is rather than wait for my body. I mean, the body's been sending signals, but mm-hmm. rather than a morning where he wakes up and he's paralyzed or a morning where he wakes up and he can like not lift his kids in the air because of some injury, he's, you know, chosen to hang it up. And I think it's, I think it's admirable uh, for someone who's already made a hundred million dollars. So like, there's that, you know, like the comfortable, comfortable being comfortable to just like say, but I think you have to take that into account period with all of these athletes. Like, of course they're multimillionaires and, and, and privileged in a certain way that, uh, we can't imagine, but I don't think that takes away from, you know, the 
admiring what he chose to do and how hard that must have been to arrive at that decision. I have to imagine there's even the sense for me, there would be the sense if I were a professional football player, I suspect that I would be like, even if I don't get hurt in a way that is no, that is clear and like noticeable one, maybe for the rest of my life, I'll be beating myself up for not quitting sooner Two, how do I know I won't just Vontae Davis? How do I know that in three or four months, I might just not be like, you know what? I'm leaving. I'm leaving in the middle of the game. I'm going to, this is not time. It, bye. Bye, everybody. Uh, and instead, or they, or they, or they, or they like, like your, your brain, your brain right. will trick you yeah, yeah, yeah. 30 years from now, right? Like in which right. you have all these players where they were fine, quote unquote, fine during their, their playing time. And then you have these families like desperate, desperately suing the NFL for suppressing, uh, information that could have better informed players that may have made, maybe they wouldn't have made different decisions. Maybe they would have decided like, I'm just to be a football grinder, but they were information was suppressed in it, in that people did not know what was going to happen to their bodies, or at least be given information that could allow them to speculate. And then for 30 years from now, uh, you know, all of a sudden they're having, you know, severe uh, mental illness issues as a result of hits they took during their time in the league. By the way, uh, Deadspin wrote a really good piece about this uh, a couple weeks ago um, by Dom uh, Constantino about how hard the NFL is fighting concussion claims. Um, it's it's the story of uh, George Andres um, family trying to get compensation and care for him as he developed uh, some late life uh, symptoms of CTE. And their approach was basically, well, prove it. He doesn't seem to have CTE. And the family, like the thing was, he was still very high functioning. He'd always been uh, like a very put together and articulate and, and polished guy, apparently. And so when you saw him, you didn't, there was nothing about him that would make you say obvious obviously there are neurological issues afflicting this man but the family because you know you don't hide anything from family family sees shit they see changes the family was seeing profound changes and they were seeing profound difficulties cropping up and the nfl was continuing to fight that and i think this is another thing that's changed is just generationally more of the like more of these players better understand the risks than i think guys playing 30, 40 years ago did. Uh, not, it's not just that the ethos has changed, but they've kind of seen what has become a lot of, of a lot of those play through it guys mm-hmm. and how they have been cared for and treated or more, more accurately not been cared for or treated by the league when the bill comes due for this late in life. And so I think that probably has also shifted the, the calculation because it's not just the issue of how much wear and tear on your body, how much chronic pain you're going to have for, for the rest of your life, but also what is, what is late life going to look like? And, and what, what is the, what is the actual cost of playing through a long, brutal NFL career going to be? And I think you've got more guys who are going to be inclined to say, mm, better. Like if I've got mine, I should quit while I'm ahead. It's also a financial thing, right? So, like, I was reading about – so one of the, like, early shocking retirements to the NFL was Jim Brown, who was a uh, perennial running back for for the Cleveland Browns, who also retired at the age of 29. Now, granted, the running back position is one that, like, wears down players, like, exceptionally fast, both then and now. Um, 
but he uh, <laughs> I was reading that he retired while he was off filming uh, in the movie A Dirty Dozen, where he was for a couple of months of filming there was making significantly more money than he would make in the NFL um, because he'd become like an incredibly a big public figure because of what a what an incredible athlete he was. But he just wasn't making that much money relative to what he could make uh, leveraging his public figure status. And so I think that it may also feed into like earlier retirement cycles for players. Look at, you know, uh, Gronkowski on the on the Patriots. Uh-huh. Like he feels like he's been around forever and he kind of has. But like he's also under 30 um, and is he, uh, you know, I think today as we're recording this announced some, you know, health some something something that he's a part of because these these folk these these players can become larger than life figures in the public space and then go you know what i'm good i'm gonna go make you know that 20 million dollars somewhere else instead of getting the shit kicked out of me uh every week and uh going eight and eight but the thing i i don't want to get lost in this is there are there is such a difference in opportunity and means and outcome for players depending on where you're at in terms of like eliteness within the league, but also just in terms of what position you play, right? Like right now we are seeing more holdouts than I think we've ever seen before uh, from like uh, skill position players. But in particular, if you play running back, no matter how good you are, chances are you are not going to get paid what your labor was right. ultimately worth. Just because of the way rookie and first contracts in the NFL are structured and how long it takes for you to get your free agency payday, and then the wear and tear that happens to a featured running back uh, on an NFL team. And so you've got uh, you know, Le'Veon Bell sort of sat out the Steelers season last year. Uh, feeling that the franchise tag contract he was offered was not worth it. Uh, now you've got Ezekiel Elliott doing something similar in Dallas. But and these are star players. It's an even grimmer picture if you are just, you know, a third down, pounded up the middle kind of running back. That is still a useful position in the NFL, not as useful as it used to be, but it is still an important thing to have in your toolkit when you need it. But that that type of player doesn't isn't going to have Andrew Luck money or anything near it. Right. Where they can say, like, you know, at age 26, 27, like, I have gotten righteously screwed up playing this game. I I want out. A lot of those guys have to be like they they're they don't they can't easily walk away without uh foregoing a payday that a lot of them are going to need in a way you you don't need that money if you racked up a hundred million hundred million in the first few years of your career. Isn't isn't the uh like average like career in the NFL something like four years? Three like years. a ridiculous like it's Jesus. like <laughs> I mean when you put it in perspective right. that way, when you think about folks that spend their entire life to get to this moment and then real and then either get injured or right. it turns out they can't make the transition. Um, people, I think uh, it, like the way like the rookie, like even if you get drafted, like the rookie pay scale is different based on which round you're drafted in. Uh-huh. And so you make real meaningful money if you get drafted in like say the first or second round. Like I think like first round picks are making like a million a year or something like that, or like definitely like high six figures. That is not the case if you're, uh, you know, a sixth round draft pick, or even if you get picked up as an undrafted free agent who could potentially claw your way into the, the squad. I was remember reading about um, 
one of the most one of the high end uh, undrafted free agents that like the Bears picked up was this I think this receiver Marvin Hall something like that um, the name escapes me but um, he had some injury issues in college but was like I had like high upside and so the Bears picked him up uh, when he went undrafted and paid him fifty thousand dollars and that was a highly competitive offer to get him to turn down other offers from other teams they were looking at undrafted free agents which is like we th- the hundred million dollars we look at Andrew Luck I think. Uh, masks actually how little money is available to all sorts of players that allow the engine of the NFL to run um, and the, the games don't work without them but they they are putting their bodies through the same punishment and not with the same reward and I you have to wonder at some point you know the, the theory of the NFL dying has never been that it'll you know they used to be like oh if someone dies on the field, That'll that'll end the NFL. I actually don't think that would happen. I think if someone died on the field, people would get over it three days later and move on to the next game. Um, but it's always been if there was a te- if if parents wouldn't like wouldn't allow their kids to play football, got them into soccer, got them into basketball, or athletes with new information chose actually it's more lucrative and better yeah. for my body to do yep. anything but play football. That I mean, like to some degree, the thing that that I think. Uh, makes the most sense to me is what uh, Drew Magri suggests in the Deadspin piece, what Andrew Luck means, which is just a sort of much slower death to the NFL. It is not going to be a big event happens, someone dies on the field, and then tomorrow America decides it doesn't love the Super Bowl. But what it will mean is what you just said, Patrick, the idea that that at a young age, athletes start to go in different directions. People who love sports, I want to play sports, I want to play sports at the highest, most competitive levels, will go other places than football. And also those who go into football will just start leaving sooner. This will not be the outlier. This will be the thing that you come to expect. Um, and I think the thing that that piece, again, the, the title of it over on Deadspin is what Andrew Luck means, gets to in the end is like the the most scorching take uh, on the NFL. And not just on the NFL, but on, on a fandom that, which we didn't talk on this, we didn't speak on this yet at all, that like a lot of Colts fans were like, fuck you, Andrew Luck. How dare you? How dare you step away? How dare you say that you're tired? How dare you say that you're hurt? You know, my dad, my dad is the one who's hurt because you broke his heart. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. Uh, my wallet is the one who's hurt because I said I don't go to the games, but I've had season tickets and I like to sell them on StubHub and now they, are, <laughs> they ain't worth shit. They ain't worth shit. Uh, and, and so he ends this piece. Uh, by referring to both the kind of NFL, speci- you know, specifically, but also the, the the NFL fandom, the people who are who are diehards who demand this from their players, who from their players, quote unquote, uh, quote, they want you to enlist. They want you to serve your team for God and country. That is the blueprint. The NFL has always been in love with its war metaphors. So it's fitting that the league now finds itself existentially lost when trying to deal with the consequences of real human wreckage, of players discovering that this sport will kill them and it will kill them faster the longer they play it. The NFL doesn't want players like that. They want something beyond mere passion. They want players too obsessed to see the danger or to feel the pain. They want you, pardon the expression, brain damaged. Andrew Luck knew better than to give his entire life to this league. He won't be the last. In some critical ways, he is merely the first. 
Um, and, and obviously, even inside this piece, you know, uh, Magritte basically says he isn't the first. Here are the, here's a list of all these other people who disappeared early in their careers because they thought better of it. They thought about other ways they could make money. They thought about other ways they could live lives. Um, but yeah, like it, it is, it is one of those things where like, yeah, that is to some degree the core of the NFL, both as a business organization, as a sports league, as like a propaganda machine, as a, as an ideal, as like an ideological organization. And, and as like a fan culture, it is, you know, every day we go out there, every Sunday, warriors take to the fields and throw their bodies into each other under the command of a noble leader, the quarterback or the coach, if you're, you have a good coach. Um, and, and that is like, <laughs> it is those two things. On Monday's podcast, we talked a lot about uh, video games because it's a video game podcast. And we talked about how games, the playing of a game goes beyond the the holding a controller that like. Talking about it on Twitter, coming up with fan theories, all that shit is part of the play. And part of the play of being an NFL fan is partaking in the weird LARP that is treating these people like they're soldiers. Think of fantasy football. Like 100%. this has been an enormous contributor. And this is someone who like deeply enjoys playing fantasy football. And like it's like a, a bonding activity that I do with like different groups of friends that like I don't spend a lot of time in real life in. But it's like it is explicitly and purposely dehumanizing of like taking athletes, turning them into chess pieces, and then like hoping for the best. I mean, look at like uh, the way like Le'Veon Bell was treated because he held out after the season started and he was like a number one, two, or three draft pick. Or the way Andrew Luck has, um, you know, lots of leagues already drafted and people are angry because all of a sudden, right. if you don't have a decent quarterback, you're going to be behind the the eight ball on like being able to participate in your in your season. And like there are so many ways. And I think fantasy football is just uh, – that that is less, uh, uh, you know, uh, explicit propaganda from the league and its ideology that presses that. That is more just like – a uh, something that's developed around sports um, um, that contributes like to an already like established idea of like dehumanizing players in a way that like it's easier to root for the quote the quote the sport 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 instead of like for the people that actually are in the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of that stuff because like fantasy football used to be just uh, a like you know part of the ecosystem. It is now its own ecosystem. Like if any, like if people don't quite grasp like fantasy football isn't just like something like. Some people do like it's an industry like it is it is there are as many fantasy sports reporters almost as there are sports reporters. That's the wild thing. Like if you go to a sports site, you can you can read about the NFL or you can read about fantasy football. And those are two different coverage angles and both are extremely lucrative. Uh, Possibly the fantasy stuff is more lucrative, right? Like it's the same reason everyone's getting into guides because people want this information they want it right the fuck now right it's not just oh i wonder what's happening in the league today it's god damn it i need to know how many touches this my running back is going to get this week against the titans well look andrew andrew luck retiring what does that mean for the adp of uh ty hilton the average yeah. draft position of ty hilton which is like something i listened to on a podcast this morning yeah. where they brought it up they're like <laughs> well um let's have a serious discussion about andrew luck and that's a bummer but what does this mean for your fantasy team? And God. like, you get it. Like, I get it because like, this is people's jobs. Like, I was listening to a fantasy podcast as I get ready for like the the main one that I do next week. But like, even they, uh, even the podcast I get like had to like, they had to have like a moment of being like, fuck. Uh, like, it puts it in such stark terms of w- how you talk about these individuals when you are breaking them down into what does it mean for a wide receiver's average draft position because his he's now being thrown balls by a, a quote-unquote lesser quarterback yeah i mean patrick i i don't know that 
fantasy football is such an ideologically convenient thing that I can't comp- like I can't go as far as being like you know it's probably not explicitly propagandistic like to a degree I'm the not, NFL I'm not, I'm not arguing it isn't harmful right. to like people's like viewing of the sport I absolutely 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 for I think for like a huge majority of the people that probably play fantasy football even if they don't realize it even if they don't uh, aren't cognitively aware of like what it's doing. Like yeah. it is like when you are down to it, like, and I remember this last year. So I, uh, I, the, the championship I won last year uh, in this league that I'm in and it was me and someone else in the, in the final game where I had one player left. I was yelling, I think for either Tyler Lockett or Doug Baldwin. One of them was injured last year. And so I can't remember which one it was, but it was just, I needed seven points. And it's just me screaming at the screen every time Russell Wilson threw a ball to someone that wasn't that wide receiver. I gave no shits if the Seahawks won or lost. I just needed Russell Wilson to throw a ball to this player. And he eventually did. And I won and I won the match. And but it's like as fun as that was, and I see I know what I get out of it, and I try to make sure that I I balance that with like a, a healthy diet of like Un, like reading about players and trying to empathize with players, but I cannot, I cannot pull that away from from what it what it also does on a fundamental level, which is dehumanizing players because that's what it's supposed to do. It turns it turns them into these stat pieces. Yeah, I, I think the NFL is in a, in a weird place where, at, on the one hand, athletes are so often held off as just sort of wealthy, pampered, a type of wealthy, pampered elite that you can resent as a working person because they don't know how good they have it. And so you don't see that like the average NFL player. Yeah. And the average NFL player is indeed like we're like busting ass. And if you consider the opportunity cost of like having an NFL career and then the average length of that career and what they earn, like that's, it's, it ends up being that is that is a labor ass job. That is not you know that, that doesn't move. And nothing about football prepares class. you for a life after football, right? No. Like the vast majority of them do not go on to become coaches or to academics, and you know, mo- like most people dedicate their life to football. And the moment football ends, their life starts over. You read all sorts of tragic stories of right. folks that. You know, lost their their finances or, or had a catastrophic injury, and like you know, plenty of them can go back to school. They can figure it out, but it's because the ideology of football is so uh, specifically it's football, it's football, it's football. A consequence of that is like when football is removed from these people's lives, uh, then they are left with with almost nothing else. Yeah, and I think the other aspect of fantasy football so approaching from the other angle is just ideologically it sort of trains you to look at players the way management would right as mm-hmm. these as these pieces uh as, as these sort of tools in your hand um and so I, I think to a degree like the nfl is is very good or has been very lucky in how fan how fans and devotees of the sport end up following it and end up intellectually regarding it. And I think that sort of ties into the topic we're going to get into next after the break, uh, which is the NFL's newest partner. Uh, Jay-Z is here to work with the NFL (laughs) to book entertainment acts and, you know, help inspire change. Uh, But first we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more.
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so the other thing that happened late in this offseason is that uh, Jay-Z announced a partnership with the NFL, both to produce halftime events uh, with diverse entertainment acts. uh, Quote, unquote. Yeah, whatever that means. Uh, And then... As well, Rock Nation is going to be promoting the NFL's Inspire Change Initiative, which is some form of NFL encouraging player-led activism, but I don't know what that means, but it sure isn't going to be happening during a game. And this has been... I'm not even sure I would say it's been controversial because it seems like the reaction has been pretty universal about like what Jay-Z seems to be doing here. Uh, But I think maybe Jamel Hill over at the Atlantic put it most bluntly when she said that Jay-Z basically took partnered with the NFL to help them banish Colin Kaepernick, uh, which I think is a decent place to start this. Uh, Austin, what did I think when we talked about it? Yeah, we both were disappointed but profoundly unsurprised by this. Yeah. Uh, but why don't we talk through this? I mean, I think like the the there are like it is a thing to talk through in the sense that as you talk about it, it be the the layers of the onion the, the peel away and you're like, oh yeah, of course this makes sense. And it starts with just the history of Jay-Z being someone who is, you know, uh an entrepreneur and someone who works in, in, in the world of big business, in the realm of big business. Um, it is frustrating that he would, you know, on first blush, be someone who has been outspoken about, uh, about social justice issues, about racism, uh, and, and yet would, would sign up to, to kind of give cover to the NFL, who has, for the past three years, uh, the, the owner's uh, organization kept uh, Colin Kaepernick out of a job, on top of just being, as we said, a deeply conservative organization that polices its, its, uh, the expression of uh, its players in a way that some other sports leagues do not. Um, uh, and I think maybe for me, my first blusher's response was like, what a fucking naive thing to do, right? The idea that you hear a lot of like, oh, well, and this is what Jay-Z kind of comes out and says, you know, he comes out and says, you can work on the outside or you can work on the inside. We did the outside work already. Now it's time to work from the inside. And, you know, so, so that first blush is like, ah, yeah, great. The incrementalist, the reformist position, the like, Hey, let's let's try to push the the um, the NFL from the inside as a business partner instead of doing it just as a protester, um, which is like a deeply neoliberal position, uh, obviously. But then, as you for me, as you start to talk through it, as you start to see a pattern emerge, um, I, I think I don't remember if this is Jamel Hill or Bamani uh, Jones who who points this out. Like 
remember, Jay-Z also sold Occupy All Streets t-shirts without without cutting <laughs> in Occupy. Wait, really? Uh, yeah, Dude, without yeah. cutting in Occupy Wall Street to <laughs> the earnings of that, right? Damn, like, okay. Jay-Z, now I okay, connect the dots there, baby. Like and then and eventually you keep digging, right? And you're like, okay, he has always been someone willing to get into business with people and kind of like clean their image a little bit. And then the biggest thing that you eventually get to is he's a billionaire, right? Like Jay-Z is a billionaire. And I know we just spent the first half of this podcast talking about how these NFL players who are paid a lot of money deserve to have happy, good lives despite being millionaires and how, how that money doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, hold up in the long, in the long haul. Jay-Z is not uh, getting hit in the head. Um, Jay-Z is not, uh, uh, is not, uh, at this point in his life out on the streets anymore. Uh, Jay-Z is a billionaire. Jay-Z made a billion dollars by being a savvy negotiator, a smart businessman, uh, an entrepreneur and a great rap artist, uh, who I love, who is like very high in my personal canon, very high top three all time, probably for me. Um, but he's a billionaire and being a billionaire means in no uncertain terms for me, being immoral. Like, there is no way to have a billion dollars and to be a moral person. Uh, or to, in my in my category, and like in my in my moral standing. There is so much good you can do with that money. And the process of accumulation in the world requires you to get bloody hands to make a billion dollars. And so on one hand, like this is probably nothing compared to the stuff that Jay-Z's money comes from big picture, but it shouldn't surprise me that he is willing to get in into bed with a league and shake hands with fucking, you know, uh, uh, the, with, with Roger Goodall and be like, Hey, we can, this is what the future is going to look like. Uh, I'm going to get more rappers to do the halftime show at the Super Bowl. Um, it is a thing where Jay-Z saw money or saw, <laughs> saw an opportunity to make money, saw money and, and took it. And for the NFL, it's kind of a washed decision to work with someone who inside of the hip hop community is already losing, uh, kind of cultural cachet. Like at this point, Jay-Z lives and dies on Beyonce's name. I uh, say, yeah, <laughs> Jay-Z is uh, Beyonce's husband. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so the idea that they thought that this is what would get them back in Black America's good graces says a lot already. Do they actually think that though, or is it more that it's a bunch of uh, white football owners who ultimately, like, if you st- if you study the politics of the NFL, Roger Goodell actually does very little. It's mostly the bidding of folks uh, like Jerry Jones. Yeah, yeah it's the owner. It's the owner association. Yeah, well, which is which is true of lots of leagues in which like the commissioner like is just someone who's being, but like it is especially true and transparent in the NFL, um, which Roger Goodell is just strictly there. And is highly paid, so that he just is a conduit for what the the the, the white owners want him to do. Mm-hmm. And so um, it doesn't. I don't know necessarily that from their perspective, they think like this gets us back in the good graces. It's more that we have a we have a cultural problem, and boy, don't we have a convenient way to just like and this we- lets us this lets us say we did something, but it doesn't necessarily like. I don't think there's like. Maybe there are people on a whiteboard that Dude, say, like, I think there you know, are. I absolutely think that these motherfuckers are like that. They they are very, like, they probably wouldn't say we have a cultural problem and we have a black friend, but I think that is the logic <laughs> that is in their head. Yeah, for it sure. is what you're yes. saying, which is that, like, look, we we brought in, 
you know, this is guy isn't going to cause trouble. Yeah, and also he's going to let us hold some events. There's there there will be a panel discussion somewhere. There will be a don't you know we'll raise a few hundred thousand dollars for for you know immigrants or for you know quote unquote inter, inner city youth. They will there will be programs, and then the NFL can say that it's done its due diligence with regards to diversity, um, which is which is frustrating because that is also the sort of thing that Jay Z does, right? Like Jay Z will release a really cool New York Times edit, you know, uh, uh, op-ed about the way in which black and brown communities are, are hurt by the war on drugs. Um, uh, he will invest in, in documentaries to, to dig into Black Lives Matter. Like, I'm not saying that he's never spent money on shit that I think is good or spent his energy on shit that is good. Again, I own all his albums, even the bad ones. But, but I think that there is something so removed between that and and the wisdom of knowing when not to take the check and knowing when not to provide cover for specific other people to do harm, right? Because I think both in the Jamel Hill piece and in the Monty Jones piece, the place that they go, and Rob, you can talk a little bit about this, is, is the way in which this was timed out along with uh, some actions by Stephen Ross, the Miami Dolphins owner, and and his connection <laughs> to both to both a diversity initiative uh, oh and God. also to Donald Trump. Yeah, I think uh, Jones has a really interesting take here, which is that Jay Z became this lightning rod because we feel like we know Jay Z, right? Jay Z through his art, through the fact that like he begins first and foremost as an artist and a personality. The business comes later, but the foundation—if you strip it down—the foundation is Jay Z, the man. Right. And that is unusual among billionaire classes, right? Like we don't tend to think about oil company executives by and large are faceless and nameless. We don't think about these guys. If, if, if we know them by name, it means they probably fucked up. <laughs> but by and large, like most of the companies that do the greatest harm in the world are run and managed by guys whose names we don't know and who we do not think about, nor do we have any expectations of because we don't think of them as people. They're just soulless corporations. Right. Jay-Z is, in terms of class, one of those people. Now, he is undeniably still Jay-Z. He is still a black man informed by the experience of being black in America, but he is now also a billionaire and part of a billionaire capitalist class. And so what you saw in, in Jones' analysis, what you see Jay-Z doing here is doing the kind of deal that billionaires do, right? And it looks gross and it's self-interested and cynical, but that is those are the waters these guys swim in. And this deal was timed. It, it sort of uh, it sort of cropped up around the same time as the moment when Stephen Ross, who's the Miami Dolphins owner, was not so much caught, but people realized that he is putting together massive fundraisers for the Trump campaign. And this was startling for a couple reasons. First of all, Stephen Ross had tried to cultivate a friendlier image with the players, a more yeah. supportive, a uh, slightly more progressive position with the players so that he was, as far as owners go, one of the good ones. And that is not nothing, by the way. Char uh, Charles Pierce over at Deadspin wrote a pretty good take about if you look at the history of NFL owners – 
a lot of these guys were dirtbags, even by the standards of like rich plutocrats. Like the NFL, NFL team ownership is a weirdly self-selecting crew of shitheads. And that is definitely part of the league's history. So Stephen Ross kind of tried to pretend that he was different. And, but in terms of what is in his class interest, electing Donald Trump is in his class interest. He may genuinely not much like the man or some of his politics, but my God, he likes the pocketbook issues for billionaires. And so he's going to work to ensure this guy is reelected and continues to structure the economy in ways that benefit people like Stephen Ross. The other thing that's interesting about Stephen Ross is his money comes from a lot of um, very boutique operations like uh, Equinox Gyms, for instance, um, is one of his businesses. And a lot of the people who frequent those would regard themselves as liberal progressives, right? The, there, there, are no, there are no equinoxes in like suburban America, for the most part, right? Like an, equi- an, an Equinox gym is sort of a feature of a heavily gentrified uh, upscale urban community. And so it began to cause problems with his business because many of its customers were starting to realize like, wait, so you're telling me my gym membership is kind of bankrolling a major Trump fundraiser and supporter. And that is an awkward tension. Additionally to this, uh, there was, I forget who, um, there was a player on the Dolphins who was calling attention to this. Um, Jeremy Stills, am I pulling that out of my ass? Nothing. Uh, Kenny, Kenny Stills. Kenny Kenny Stills, Stills. yeah. Who specifically said you can't play both sides of this. Right, and... Stephen Ross and Jay-Z were like, oh, contraire. And this is kind of the, the fundamental. This is America, po- friend. Wait, but you, you read, you also read about what the coach did, right? With uh, the music? No, I missed this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so in the middle of all this, well, this, like the, the uh, Kenny Stills criticism of the owner went on for, for a bit. And then at some point in the last two weeks during a practice, um, the the new the relatively new coach the, the new coach of the, the Dolphins this year um, played six Jay Z songs oh in God. a row during the practice. At which um, like a bunch of reporters had questions afterwards and were like was this like um, you know just like someone hit repeat on like the, you know the iPhone or like what what happened here and like the, the Dolphins like didn't have an answer and then finally like the coach came around and was like yeah you know I was just trying to I was just trying to motivate him. Um, it's like, oh, what? Unfortunately, anyway, it was reasonable it. doubt, and it was just the most <laughs> weirdly listless and like thoughtful, reflective <laughs> practice in ages. God, I will. There is a, you know, there's actually another angle to this that I think we we kind of specifically moved past quickly. That is s- small and personal. Um, but Jay didn't check in with yeah. Cap about this, right? Uh, per Cap's girlfriend, I believe girlfriend. Um, uh, Jay-Z, like, talked to him later. The conversation through a source was not good, but that, like, uh, here's the exact quote from the Jamel Hill piece. Uh, Kaepernick's girlfriend, uh, Nessa Diab, wrote on Twitter that Kaepernick didn't speak with Jay-Z before he brokered the deal with the NFL. Jay-Z said yesterday that he spoke to Kaepernick on Monday, but wouldn't divulge how the conversation went. A source close to Kaepernick speaking on the condition of anonymity because of the sensitivity of the topic told me it was not a good conversation, quote-unquote. Well, and then also when he was asked about, um, like, because he did this Q&A with Roger Goodell when yeah. the thing was announced, and then 
he got like a couple of like pretty Jay Z got a couple of like fairly hostile questions because like even like an, a public audience that was like around for this like shilly announcement was like, uh, excuse me, what? Yeah. Um, and someone asked about you know like you know how do you reflect on sort of like the whole you know kneeling thing that's been <laughs> such an issue for the last couple of years and he said god i think we moved past i think we've moved past kneeling i think it's time for action I which think is it's just time for action <laughs> i'm jay-z <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck off jay uh the thing the, but even because like, that answer is so bad it's, so it's like bad. such Mm. The the irony for me as a as a hip hop fan is that the last time Jay Z like tried to co opt something else from someone else without getting permission from them, it caused Nas to write Ether, uh, and like I feel like there's a degree to which you have to learn that if you're going to to do something like this, or to me the way you show that commitment to the idea that you're still working together in spirit towards some end, even when you are signing a deal with the devil, is that you go and you talk to the people involved and get their blessing, or at least try to explain yourselves before you make the decision, right? Like, if this really, if Jay really did conceptualize this as part two in Kaepernick's action, for me, that has to begin with a conversation with Cap that is, you, maybe you don't get the sign off, but you start there and you go, listen, this thing came across my desk. This thing is exciting to me because, yes, it's going to make me a lot of money, but also because I am going to be able to influence them in their offices with deals. I'm going to be able to pay a bunch of black artists. I'm going to be able to do this, this, and this, da 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 And when you do that, then I can conceptualize it as you at least conceptualizing it as the follow through to what Kaepernick started. But that isn't what happened here, right? Like we know this didn't begin with Jay and Cap being like, all right, what's, ne- what's step two? Or even him going like, you know, bless me, father, for I have sinned. Like it is just him going forward on this thing and asking for forgiveness later. And like it's, I'm just gonna never be able to to sit. This is not gonna sit right with me in that sense. The other thing that came out during this was, uh, so so uh, last year during the Super Bowl, uh, Travis Scott performed with Adam Levine, um, and uh, Jay Z was one of the people along with uh, I think Rihanna and Cardi B who had told uh, Travis Scott like, yo, don't fuck with don't fuck with the NFL right now. Let Maroon 5 do Maroon 5. You do not need to be their cosign. And Jay-Z said after this announcement that he'd actually just told Scott that he shouldn't perform at the Super Bowl because he would be playing second fiddle, quote-unquote, to Maroon 5. It had nothing to do with Kaepernick. It was just show business. It's just show business, baby. It's just business, you know? Yeah. Fuck, man. But again, the thing that we... By we, I mean fans of hip-hop, I mean black folks, have done is given a pass to Jay-Z for being Jay-Z without engaging with the fact that he is also a billionaire. Like, of course this is the deal he makes. And also, frankly, it's made his music bad. Like, I don't care about your watches, my guy. I really just... I. Please write a, a please write an old verse. Please write a new verse. Please get excited about anything that Play isn't Play a character. <laughs> right? God damn. Anyway, yeah. it's, it's frustrating, but it's also not unexpected, not just from Jay-Z, but from the league. I think what we all should have done is thought much harder, much earlier about ha- how they were going to try to internalize the, the criticisms that they were given into ways that could make them 
into ways that look like you know charity write-offs. Basically, um, we talked about this with the with the WWE last year and the ways in which they were you know Ian Ian uh, Jacobs uh, uh, hmm, Ian. Williams, Ian Jacobs is a guy I went to school with in high school. Uh, Ian Williams um, uh, wrote for Deadspin at the time um, that uh, that the WWE had a history of kind of internalizing and co-opting any criticism yes, against it. Great piece. And this is the same bit, right? It's and it's it's not surprising. This is just what businesses do. You know, this is what organizations in in neoliberal America in the West do. Is like once a movement is powerful enough to be a threat, you internalize that threat. You bring that threat inside. You ask it in for coffee. You make it part of you, and then it can't hurt you so bad. Um, maybe it forces you to reform this or that. Maybe it means you've just put you know some money, uh, you earmark some money in your budget that year for some for some programs you weren't planning on on earmarking that money for. But you don't have to fundamentally change the thing. We're not now going to move into a world where the NFL has players allowed to speak their minds or show their tattoos or have you know again like Patrick, you started this off by by contrasting this with the NBA, where players have a sense of style and expression because of their fashion because they can they can show up with, you know, different sneakers on because they wear their shorts differently because they have, you know, like there's a huge array. They can also mu- muscle their way like right. from team to team based on their own whims. Like they, exactly. they're this sort of like the, the player empowerment era right, of right, like right. where you have these younger players who are like, you know what? I don't want to be stuck on a shitty team for 10 years. Like actually fucking trade me. And like what's happening now is like, exactly. They, they do. And there are, there are contractual reasons between the NBA and NFL, which will make that far more difficult but, to ever be possible. But, but it that's is like reflective point. of a larger culture. Right. right. That, those, yes, those yes, contracts exactly. exist because it's the culture. Those contracts are meant to keep players loyal and keep players still. Whereas in the NBA right now, you have someone like Kawhi Leonard who 10 years ago, even you couldn't imagine someone winning a championship and then turning on that, leaving that, that, team immediately that's a franchise player that team's gonna do whatever it needs to and signing a two-year deal normally you like right you you become a champion you go okay all right that's it i'm good go cash in for eight years years, and make the rest of my life in my dream city with my family no he's like ready to move again (laughs) do you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) so so yeah like that is that is uh, this is not me saying like and that's the way it should be. I, this isn't my area of expertise, but what I do know is a knock-on effect of that has been that coaches, coaches and owners can't stamp down player expression in the same way. They will go to a place where they can feel welcomed and where they can express themselves. LeBron and others came out with, you know, like, I can't breathe shirts. Yes, like yes, when, yes. Um, when all that was, like, that would, like, they kneeled for a minute in the NFL, and it was as though they, they were, like, not, pl- like, refusing to even play football, like doing something meaningful yeah. to affect like the day-to-day operation of the NFL when all they did was a symbolic gesture that nobody watching the game even sees because they don't really pan over to that shit on the broadcast, yeah. especially if well, they know the network's that, complicit in that. Yeah. Well, well, exactly, exactly, 100%. Right, right, right. Because once they know that the kneeling's going to occur, they're just not going to show it. Mm-hmm. But it's like in the NBA, again, problematic league all its own for plenty of reasons, but it's like, the whole teams come out wearing like deeply political shirts that are like way more fire than kneeling and have way more to say about a problem than kneeling. A kneeling was a, a gesture towards a systemic issue. It wasn't even pointing towards a specific person yeah. or a specific incident. And um, also was, and also as always, we should take the brief moment to talk about how kneeling wasn't disrespectful to begin with. 
to begin no, with. No, of course. Right, yeah, of course. Shit. Kaepernick yeah. consulted with one of his teammates who was a veteran yeah. as to, hey, how do you feel about me sitting out the national anthem? And the dude was like, actually, like as somebody who served, um, it feels a little weird to me, but like kneeling seems appropriate. And so that was the concession. And he didn't attach a statement to it. He never said anything about what he was doing. It wasn't a public rollout. It wasn't. Right, right. He wasn't launching like a per- sneakers with it. You know what I mean? Well, no, but also wasn't like I kneeled and then check out on Twitter. Like, here's a long statement yeah, about yeah, like yeah. what I'm doing. And part of that was like, he's also an imperfect actor, especially in the early days sure. of, of like this whole thing. But he, he only explained why he was doing it once, like in a post game, like scrum, someone came up, and was like, Hey, why'd you kneel? And then he explained why he kneeled like he you know couldn't have i think it's so easy to forget like the the roots of like where this all came from and how sort of like it, it wasn't that big of a deal even to the players that were like participating and like began the movement it was mostly just like they wanted to do something in a in a in a league that constricts their ability to do anything and even that was enough to cause spasms amongst um, well, because that's the know. reactionary playbook, right, is yeah. to have a pearl-clutching overreaction to anyone even highlighting an issue as if it is an unforgivable personal attack, uh, and therefore to make the entire conversation so noxious that people begin to avoid it just for the sake of trying to maintain uh, peace and comedy in the family, the family in this case being uh, white American sports fans, by and large. And so, like, this is this this was all very much uh, this was such a mild form of protest and activism that was disproportionately focused on because any sort of acknowledgement of police violence and discrimination had to be aggressively attacked and tamped down. Um, And that's and, you know, that that sentiment is pretty common around this issue. You don't have to look far to like what the fraternal order of police tends to say every time uh, one of their number have egregiously fucked up and someone's lost their life. Um, well, there's also the, in, in this, you know, figures like Trump accelerated this, this was already happening, but sort of like the nationalization of politics in which like it, it consumes our every day. Mm-hmm. Also part of the like vitriolic reaction to Kaepernick was this sense of, oh, great, politics has come to the NFL. Like, the, my Sundays are my days where I get to watch men, <laughs> largely black men beat each up, beat each up other yeah. on Sundays and, like, please leave your politics out of it. Because, like, there was a lot of that. I mean, obviously, like, people saying leave your politics out of it is is an undercurrent of, of politics that they just don't, they don't want to speak to because they use that as a mask. But that was, like, a huge part of that reaction was, like, no, Sundays are sacred. Sundays where the, the military fighter jets fly over and we all stand up and do an anthem that actually wasn't a regular part of the sport until the 90s and it became sort of a propaganda wing of the American government. Right. That's where I don't want my politics in. And, like, then everything spread from there. It was like, oh, football's sacred. Football is different. And it actually, you know, no, it's never been. And it's just you you chose to view it that way. Um, so a couple other just strange stories, less freighted, I would say. Some strange stories this preseason, though, that I want to touch on uh, before we begin putting our misgiving. Well, actually, I'm not going to I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do the whole like lampshading the fact that this I'm is unco- a- 
Yeah, that we're all uncomfortable the fact with talking about the NFL because the NFL is a shit show and because of everything from the systemic racism to the similarly systemic issue of of uh, uh, physical health and mental health uh, among yeah. among athletes in the organization. Sure. Yeah. Well, I've, but I think there's there's also an element of this is we talk about this is part of how we follow these sports. These sports are part of our culture. The personalities behind it are also part of our culture. I am like it is like right, football right, is right, a right. problematic thing. But at the same time, I am actually grateful that this Jay-Z and Stephen Ross story has sort of pointed out that like there are so many dudes like Stephen Ross who put awful who help advance awful things in the world and would prefer us not know about it or think about it and if sports is also a vector through which we realize like oh these are people with like names and faces and interests and a thing they try to present to the world that is not borne out by their actions that is that is useful um and I want to read this. I want to read this this Gronk quote like because he's been he's been doing this press conference. People are asking him about the luck stuff and why he retired yeah. uh, too. And he said, uh, uh, "This is just one tweet uh, from uh, Gronk had to have one liter of blood drained from his quad after Super Bowl Fifty Three, which was this this most recent one." Jesus. Um, he he describes in tears how he was uh, crying in bed and couldn't sleep because of the pain the night that he won a Super Bowl. Twenty nine years old. Right. Of course you would retire. Yeah. Bye. Jesus. You can't even enjoy what is supposed to be like the height of your like athletic accomplishment. Now granted, you know, the Patriots have been <laughs> to, to that height plenty of times <laughs> over the years, but that is like like that is, you know, both a testament to what they put together as like an organization and also like the fact that you can't you can't even enjoy the thing that you've sacrificed your body for because your body is actually pushing back against it in the moment. It's just. Well, and also literally a lot of their, like a number of their championships don't happen without Gronk being physically there to put his body on the line for the team. Right. Like, yeah, like this last championship by the Patriots was entirely Tom Brady, not being particularly remarkable. He just looked for Gronk and he knew Gronk would like get it done and shrug off whatever body blows it took to do it. Um, That is that was the value that Gronkowski supplied to the team. And that is the toll it took. And he's kind of a. uh, Well, Gronk is a bro's bro. Yeah. it's It's interesting to see those two sort of. Uh, like slotting personality types in the NFL. I mean, and Andrew Luck, you know, football was his life. You know, he he was that kind of guy. But he was also go read the interviews with him. Like he he is a guy that has like strong opinion. He's never watched. He has a book club. Uh, he has never watched the Game of Thrones TV series because he's so committed to the books that he wants to see those. Damn. Things down. Um, like he's that kind of guy. Like he's he does architecture in his spare time. Like he is like as close as you get to sort of like an intellectual in like the football space, of which there are lots of players who don't get to express those sides of them that that, that I'm certainly exist. But Andrew Luck was one of those that like you at least got to see that side of him. Whereas Gronk, you know, I'm sure part of this is character, part of this is just who he is. But like this is the kind of guy. Like after the Super Bowl, there'd be photos in the tabloids of him Talk like the party boat. You know, on the party boat, slamming <laughs> beers with like nine, you know, women yeah. around him. Um, he was he was a he was a frat guy that was also just sublimely talented at the sport of football. Um, and so to see those two sort of like uh, personality types then expressing like such deep emotional trauma, like if like nothing else happens over the course of like Luck retiring, if like what he does is like in some way open the door for players to 
talk about that stuff in a like more human way that maybe to at least some degree of the audience that is interested in listening gets a better sense not 20 years later or like like we he didn't tell that story the day after the Super Bowl he's telling it now as he's talking right. about an endorsement deal for some other thing that's going to make him millions of dollars which you know whatever be private you know talk about your stuff when you want to talk about your stuff but there's a culture of not discussing those things in the moment that like all these things we're talking about that contribute to the dehumanization, whether it's the costuming of players, whether it's fantasy football, whether it's the ideology of like the league and how it hides its, but like all of this stuff contributes to not treating them as humans because to some degree, how, how can you, right? Like if you, if there's no vector to understand them as humans, it, there's a natural tendency to build up in your mind that like they are just, you know, these people that go out for, for blood sport. And so, you know, good for him for talking about it. I just hope that, both these players open the door to them talking about it sooner and during a season and during games when, um, you know, because, you know, fo- football teams famously do whatever they can to not explain injuries during the season because it's a competitive advantage to not explain what's happening to your players. But it's a cultural disadvantage because then it contributes to learning about all the blood being drained of his quad when he's so supposed to be celebrating the Super Bowl. It's fucked up. It's fucked up. And that is why we should give Antonio Brown his fucking helmet. Because it's fucked up to be a player in the NFL, because helmet technology is fake, uh, and because it's fake. Give him his fucking helmet. How about that one? Because give him his fucking helmet. So if you didn't follow this during the offseason, <laughs> one of the weirdest stories, and it, this this has turned out to be one of the least of the things that have happened this offseason. This probably ends up being one of the minor ones, I guess. But Antonio Brown has had this wild saga through the NFL in the last year or so. And I think you almost have to begin it back in Pittsburgh where he was a, again, one of these like generationally talented wide receivers who made quarterback and long-term. I think it's fair to, it's fair to say that there are a lot of reasons why one might reach the conclusion that Ben Roethlisberger is a shithead. Um, there have been allegations of sexual assault around him. Uh, there is also a long track record of him basically being, it's never his fault, right? That's the kind of manager he is as a quarterback. He's the guy who's like, I'm doing everything right. And if we fall short of results year after year, it's just because of all these guys around me who are letting me down. And Anthony, uh, and Antonio Brown was one of the dudes that he sort of picked on. Antonio Brown, such a good receiver, by the way, he probably made Roethlisberger look much, oh, much way better. better. Uh, way than, better than, than he actually is. 100%. Yeah. Uh, same, same as like Odell Beckham probably extended Eli's career uh, by, by a season or two just by managing to find opportunities that the quarterback maybe couldn't create for himself. But Antonio Brown basically hit a point where he was done with dealing with Roethlisberger and being literally like Roethlisberger would like go on sports radio in in Pittsburgh, like you and I, like you you and I are sitting here now bullshitting about sports. He would go and do that, except he's the quarterback of the Steelers, and he'd be like, "Yeah, man, Antonio fucking sucks." Like that's the like he would basically call out teammates on a Pittsburgh sports radio. So Brown decides he's done, and he was still under contract, but he made it clear that like. I'm going to be so much of a pain in the ass for you to keep. Uh, y'all should just let me go. And they did. They ended up trading him to John Gruden's Raiders, 
which has already been a circus in its own right. We've talked about this before on the show. Um, And Brown goes out there and immediately things start to go off the rails. First, it's his feet. Uh, Oh, my God. We also talk about cryotherapy and what fucking crock (laughs) of shit that is. Yeah. mm. Okay, Jay-Z's first. Okay, Jay-Z, you want to help black athletes. Step one. Give them a good medical advisor that that please I'm begging you. My my family is getting scammed out there. People cryotherapy mm, cryotherapy is a uh, a thing that many athletes do. Uh, where after uh, Floyd Mayweather, one of the first conspicuous users of it, which tells you a lot. It is the conspicuous consumption of high-performance athletes. Steph Curry, like the top tier, top tier. LeBron, go. if you go into a really cold room after a really rough game, you'll recover faster. It's not true. It's not true. None of it is not. The science is in. Not true. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize it basically been debunked. I yeah. thought last I heard there was something there about like cold therapy for muscle recovery. Everything that I've read this week was people being like people who were in cryotherapy being like, yeah, it totally works. And people outside of cryotherapy being like, this is a crock of shit. And any benefit is is uh, is what's the word I'm looking for is a placebo effect, basically. Yeah. Or, or and it is dangerous, it by be, the way. This isn't like you're right. going into an ice cold. Like you're not. It's not even like going to like meat locker temperatures. No, it is literally you're going into like a liquid nitrogen cooled, uh, like personal AC unit that's just right. blasting you with with like frigid air. Right, and to be and, clear, and to be clear, I'm not saying that like you shouldn't ice your body or that there isn't value in an ice bath or that there aren't other degrees of like. Cooling temperatures help, blah, 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 blah. But this specific sort of therapy, which uh, even has uh, an issue of like things going bad, uh, probably being underreported currently, Mm -hmm. um, uh, is like a very, it's like a fad. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a, you know, a a sort of sports fad for top tier athletes. And yes, you're right. The beginning of this was Antonio Brown not wearing proper footwear while performing cryotherapy and getting really bad frostbite on his feet from stepping into the room. So he already is starting and to posting for that. photos. Yeah. Don't Which do that. The photos looked bad, but on the other hand, as someone who's had some messed up shit happen to his feet, like they yeah. didn't look that bad, honestly. <laughs> like when you got like good, healthy skin growing in underneath like bad, like bad dead skin, but the dead skin's just like sloughing off, like you're good to go. That's just, that's fine. Like it's not, it's not sightly, but it's fine. Uh, but then he, what's the way, to, what's the way to put this? So he has worn the same make and model of football helmet his entire career. And it is now not necessarily out of date because here, because here's the thing as, as Austin, you alluded to the idea that the football helmet can be engineered to prevent or significantly mitigate the risk of developing uh, CTE from a football career the science also appears to be in the effect is marginal at best. It is the nature of the game and the types of hits you take and the speed at the increasing speed at which it is being played, uh, that makes 
it dangerous and especially dangerous for brain health. Nevertheless, we kind of have this performance of safety uh, that goes on within the NFL. And part of that is uh, rating and approving different uh, different helmets. His the like the players union is also involved in like approving these helmets, so it's not like just an edict down from the NFL. Like they're the players association, which I mean the NFL is weaker than than others, but uh, like they are involved, I guess, in approving these these helmets. So it's not it's not just <laughs> Jerry Jones being like wear a better helmet, <laughs> Antonio Brown, right? Yeah. Uh, so his fell out of date, and as I understand it, it's not necessarily even that it is a. Um, like that, that it no longer passes current standards. It's that it no longer even gets tested. Like the helmet, just you know, it, it's like it's like an elevator inspect inspection sticker, I guess. Where it's no, so they, so yeah, like he, the, the the original one that he had was like so old that it like c- couldn't qualify. Period. And then what, like the advancement of that was like if he could find one that was the same helmet but made a year later, then he could. Uh, get he found one of those it got tested and then it failed whatever standards test they apply to it so he found one that was like within the manufacturing period that they would have accepted um but then when they found that helmet it like it, it was clearly the same type of helmet just a year later and then whatever test they used they it quote unquote failed so nate jackson uh who's an ex-nfl player wrote a good piece uh again over at deadspin about why it was unfair to mock Brown for having what people regarded as a very, very diva like reaction to being told to switch helmets. And there were funny details. Like apparently he tried to smuggle his old helmet into practice. Oh, they were like really funny. He, did, like, he didn't just smuggle it. He took, he took a helmet and got it spray painted to look like an Oakland Raiders helmet. And then was told multiple times like a child, uh-huh. like, like you can't sneak the helmet out of the field. You will get, we'll all get in so, how, <laughs> however ridiculous this is, we will get in so much trouble for doing this. Uh, and he did it twice. Yeah. And so he ended up basically sitting out a bunch of practices and kind of said the helmet was his hill to die on. And it's been, a, it's, it's been a weird saga because on the one hand, this is, Dominique Foxworth had a really good position on this over on a high noon on ESPN, which I think is probably my favorite sports discussion show. Um, but he was, he was guesting there with, with Mina Kimes and he sort of made the argument that Antonio Brown, you can't, the way he plays the game, the position he plays and the way he plays it, you can't regard him as just another player. He plays the game like an artist, not like a workaday, you know, Joe, pulling a uh, pulling pulling a shift and i think that's probably a decent way to regard antonio brown because he is so incredibly talented but there's also such a long track record of him being particular difficult to work with um he has his way about going the game and when he's on he is tremendous but that also comes with the things you begin to associate with folks who what they do isn't just a job. It's an extension of themselves. And I think that's an interesting way to regard Antonio Brown. Totally. I, I, if we, we should pump the brakes for a second here and, and like dig a little bit into why I'm talking about, why we're talking about uh, uh, the helmets, not necessarily being like concussion safe uh, at all, because I think that 
for a lot of people who watch football, it's like, well, they're making better helmets. It's a good thing. And I, you know, I do think that we should make sure that if we're going to play football, that the padding and equipment that we're using is good. Like 100%, I'm happy with people being like, hey, can we make these helmets better? But what actually happened is that in the uh, early 2010s, when people were finally talking about CTEs, late 2000s, early 2010s, people were finally talking about concussions, talking about long-term brain damage, we had a monetize the rot moment. We had, oh, there's, there's white space here for our company to be the one who solves concussions for the NFL. We all know the NFL isn't going to go anywhere. So let's try to be the ones who make the best helmet that enough people say is concussion proof or, or at least concussion safe uh, and, and try to, try to you know, capitalize on this. Um, and what has happened is a decade of people making debatably safer helmets, but none of which mean that the players wearing them will not get a concussion or other, other types of head injuries, because fundamentally the sport is built around head contact, like people hit their heads against each other many times per game, even with different strategies around practice, even with different strategies around protecting the quarterback, protecting players in general, nothing has been developed that will consistently protect players. In fact, in 2013, uh, Riddell was, was like sued for millions of dollars or something. There was a, there was a lawsuit that cost them like $10 million because they were over-promising what their helmets could do to protect uh, players. Um, they, they, I believe this was young players. This is like a, a child who suffered a concussion wearing one of these helmets. Um, it, like the science as it, as it stands, uh, from what I read around this week, was like e some of these new helmets might be worse. We don't know. We don't know. Like the testing cannot be conclusive that like adding more surface space will actually reduce the, the chance of concussions. And so we end up needing to reframe, I think, a lot of the conversation around this uh, in a way that's kind of uncomfortable because what it comes back to is like Antonio Brown has been informed that he could get a concussion or suffer brain damage while playing this sport. He has a preference, which is to wear an outdated helmet, knowing that it might cause him brain damage, but also knowing that the new models might not actually increase that, the chance that he, that he be safe. Also knowing that the new model doesn't fit right, that he doesn't feel comfortable, that he doesn't have the awareness that he does of the field, the sorts of things that allow him to dodge incoming hits at the degree that he does. And he has to make a decision, or he wants to make a decision based on that. He wanted to say, Given all that, let me keep my fucking old helmet. I know what I'm doing. And instead, it was like, no. Um, I believe in the end, he's wearing the new helmet. Mm -hmm. And he has... With a branding deal. With, with a brand. Of course, of course. Monetize it all, baby. It's, put a dollar sign on everything. Um, Look, we're past sitting out practice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's time for action. Um, <laughs> I love that the it's, Jesus and Mero uh, Jay-Z impression is now the ca canonical it's the one. canonical one. It had been that before they brought it out, but it's a good one. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, I we probably don't need to devote more time to it because yeah. it's not going anywhere. But I do think it conceptualizes the relationship between player and, like, a decision about whether they want to harm themselves or not in play based on what equipment they use is a really difficult one. Like, I don't think it's an easy decision. I do think the NFL should be doing everything it can to keep people safe. I'm just not actually convinced this is doing that based on where reporting is at, you know? I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I think the Antonio Brown story was interesting to me because, again, it was one of those examples of the guy just getting roundly condemned for picking a fight that the stakes just didn't seem that high. And to an extent, there is a part of me that does worry about Antonio Brown, like continuing to make the case that he for, you know, if you need him out there, you know, making catches and training with the team, does he bring in a lot of stress and does does he end up taking himself out of the game in places where you you would vastly prefer him to be stepping up as a leader and contributor to the team he is continuing to make the the case for why people are hesitant to employ him despite his obvious talent uh but at the same time like i don't think this was as ridiculous a fight as it was made out to be because to a degree the entire thing centers on this perform this the scientism that sometimes surrounds nfl injuries uh but doesn't really have much grounding in actual player welfare and safety um Antonio Brown didn't like the way the new helmets impeded his his vision on the field. If you're a wide receiver, arguably vision and hearing are probably the tools that are going to keep you the safest. Um, but speaking of scientism, Patrick, last thing we got we got to have the Homer the Homer corner here. Um, I can't fucking believe this story. It's unbelievable. You know what? If if you paid a decent amount of money to stand in a football f- stadium and watch a man watch your brother yeah. who's also who also is a man in this situation look to you and go don't he's know not that happening. bad he's not that bad and then you hold hands with the people around you and this other man on the field kicks a kicks a kicks a ball and you hear doink doink and then you just you just watch your soul leave your body. And then that man uh, points toward God and thanks him <laughs> and says, I'll catch you on Good Morning America. And then you say, why don't you go recruit 15 kickers and kick the shit out of them and see what happens? So there was this amazing story from Sports Illustrated uh, a week or so ago by Kalen Collar about the Chicago Bears search for a new kicker in the wake of the Cody Parkey double doink debacle that wrapped up the season last year, as I believe we memorably discussed in the <clears throat> hangover from that Sunday and sent the Eagles to the next round of the playoffs. Where we did great. <laughs> Where Alshon Jeffrey, a former Bear, tipped a ball into the hands he was hurt. of a Saints defensive player. He was playing hurt. Oh well, he's always playing hurt. Was he playing hurt when he when he lied about taking those PEDs and was out for the last four weeks of the year when he was telling our team? Well, player, player sympathy hour is over. Now <laughs> it's now it is time for the area of grievances. Now that it's our, now that it's your team. Son of a bitch should have brought down the ball. God damn it! I don't care what you have to shoot yourself up with to get on that field. I need you to do this for me. No, our team was so bad, Alshon. You should have got. You made the right decision. You got out. You got out. You were. You the Eagles were a better place. Nobody should have played <laughs> you, through the Fox you, and Trestman. You played for Mark. You played for Mark Trestman and John Fox. Like <laughs> that's torture enough. But um, so this story, though, uh, Patrick, you you want to take us through it briefly? Uh, because basically, there's never. It sounds like there's never quite been a kicking search like this in the NFL before. And more than anything else, whether or not it's effective, we don't know. But it was weird. So, like, to, if if you're still listening to this point, presumably you 
watch football. But if, if for some reason you don't, kicking is like the strangest position in on an NFL team. It is the most personally isolating um, for a sport that really is, even if a quarterback is incredibly important, uh, vital to anything memorably happening, it is still like so much a, a team uh, uh, working in concert for a play to, to work. Whereas kicking, yes, some people up front need to like stop people from getting around so you can kick the ball cleanly, but it is one person responsible for one to three points um, all by themselves with an entire stadium audience watching them. It, it is a, uh, and when it's into the air, you just are watching as this one person does this one kick. It must be just psychologically to understand what it's like to be a kicker. I cannot fathom because often kickers are usually brought out in not convenient scenarios. It's often like inconvenient scenarios, like desperate scenarios. Like it's it's trying to end a game, which is what happened to the Bears when when Cody Parkey missed. Like there's just so much put on kickers psychologically that is different than other players um, on a football team. And so um, Matt Nagy, the coach of the Bears, uh, he sort of kind of became like singularly obsessed with this whole kicking thing, which is uh, it was part and parcel with the Bears while they were bad kicking – uh, or cutting Robbie Gold, who is now a, a kicker for the 49ers, um, who's been one of the best kickers in the last 10 years. He had one bad year at the Bears. They cut him, and he's been one of the best kickers ever since, and he's not on our team. Um, and so they wanted to find someone, and usually, from what I understand, what I've read is that kicking competitions are like a couple of people. Um, they can't, They don't even play with the, like when they're at, during a training camp, they don't even play with the rest of the team. Like they, they go off, they do their own thing, they do their own drills, uh, Matt Nagy had and and his crew had like a something different in mind, which is like we're gonna have like ten to fifteen people. We're gonna have really weird archaic numerical systems to judge like their arc and their kick and how they're performing. And we're gonna do something called Augusta Silence, which was during training camp. Um, they would call out for the 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 guys who were competing to be this field goal kicker. And they would have the team, the whole team line up along the sides, alongside everybody that was there for training camp. And training camp numbers this year were like off the charts, like the most people have ever had come to a Bears training camp. And Matt Nagy would ask for everyone to be dead silent while they hit field goals from the same hash mark, from the same yard mark that Cody Parkey missed to send them out of the playoffs. And they would miss it almost every time. It would like didn't really work. Um, they churned through a bunch of these kickers. Um, I just and you know it's unbelievable. It's as if it was like an exorcism or a ritual, like a haunt, like mm -hmm. uh, a haunting. Yes, a haunting. The thing that happened sucks, and I know it's easy for me to say this as the person who benefited <laughs> from the thing that happened, but God. but <laughs> but you can't act. Like a tipped field goal not going in. Look, we want to go into the. Let's not talk about the tip because I the tip did not affect the arc of the the he he. How did the Austin, tip this is not a man, affect? This is a man who played the Detroit Lions earlier you that season a field goal and hit 
He hit a field goal post five times in one right, game. Well, so that's, that's statistically right, right, impossible. Right, right. So that is why you fire and replace him. The double right, doink, yeah. it happens. You miss. Someone hits it. It spins a little bit. Maybe the arc was bad to begin with. And then, and then yes. And then, yes, he, he goes on to morning TV and says... That football, this is, I think this is an interesting connection backwards to our Andrew, to our, to our, sure. to our uh, Andrew Luck story. Football is what I do. It's not who I am, uh, is what he said. And now it's not what he does either. Uh, and, <laughs> and uh, good for him. Like, uh, that is, that is the contemporary football player. It isn't, it should not need to be who they are. And yet, uh, nine, Nine kickers were, came out to try to ritually exercise Parky <laughs> from the field by completing the kick that he missed from the hash mark that he missed it at. I, mm. Well, that's not how other, you find a good one. Though also the well, other system that they had was also completely nonsense from what I could read. Well, this is the well, thing. Also, is it is it though like that? That's also that's like on one hand, yes, because it makes it seem like so strange and so right, fair, like fair. set. But it, I all you know, I, I'm not necessarily taking it like we'll see how it works out if the guy they've ended up with is 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 good when, you know, the season starts or by good. It means I never hear his name again, which is how kickers are supposed to work. You only hear kickers names when they're bad. But it's like I've heard like and I think Rob will bring up some pieces to reinforce this is that, well, actually, like maybe the idea that we just treat kickers sure. like they're f- the fragile children and they like, can't be like put into stressful situations is is not necessarily the way. Like to to find the best kicker, even though that's how most all other teams approach it. Yeah, it's um, one of the things. So the position the Sports Illustrated article takes is that to a degree, this is not what is regarded as best practices for identifying and developing a kicker. Um, they they also started just in, like bringing in new technologies like TrackMan, uh, which is a radar system used in pro golf to track like golf swings and their outcomes. So they started implementing it at uh, to to look at how kickers were were hitting the ball. But the thing that begins the the Sports Illustrated article basically makes the case that a lot of this is just kind of uh, science ritual more than science. Uh, it is it is metrics, but perhaps without a working theory of how to deploy them. And so the entire thing ends up being a bit of a story about how weird things have gotten in, in Chicago because of the, the double doink and how weird the uh, Bears coach's reaction has been to this. At the same time... Um, passion, Rob, passion. Yeah. At the same time, one of the articles <laughs> that came out in the wake of this was by a Bears beat reporter, uh, Adam Johns, working over The Athletic, who the basically the runner-up in this competition, Elliot Fry, made the argument that in the end, this was actually a pretty thoroughgoing and not necessarily a bad way to run a kicker search. Because ultimately, the way it's been done historically is kind of a crapshoot. It's You hope you have a good one, but you don't really know, which is how you end up with uh, Cody Parkey playing under a pretty good contract and then proving to be kind of a disaster. And so maybe this this is kind of the maybe this is a different way to do it. And maybe ultimately using this data, gathering more data, putting more kickers into head to head competition against each other in pressure situations. Maybe that ultimately does result in 
identify making a better selection. Uh, I'm, Fry said that in the end of it, he felt like a better kicker, and he was out of the NFL. He was uh, working at like he picked up. A, yeah. Well, before yeah, this, he, he was working picked, as a financial oh, advisor right, right, right. in like the suburbs. He was like helping retirees open retirement accounts and probably charging way too high a management fee. Uh, <laughs> but now he is, I think, like possibly about to become the Ravens uh, kicker. Yeah, he got picked up by them. Yeah, yeah so I mean, yeah. the system may have worked. And I am, I'm, I'm so like reading this. Like, yes, like, I, and some of I'm interested in like the system of identifying a kicker for like a singularly weird position on uh, in the NFL or in football, you know, sort of like more generally in which I like would be totally fine if we just got rid of kicking and like found like different ways to like apply those points. Cause I, it seems like such an arbitrary weird way to score points in a game that like does it in so many other different ways. But I like f- more fascinated in like the cultural imprint that like fluke plays mm-hmm. have on yes. the psyche yes. of teams, coaches, fan bases, cities, um, cities. Cause like, you know, just to use Chicago as an example, like, I think there's a lot of different ways like this season can go. I think they could go 13 and three and make around the Super Bowl. I think they could have a couple of key injuries and go, you know, six and nine. I think they could be eight and eight. Fine. You know, like, I just think like the team like it, it could go so many different ways. And like, let's say it goes poorly. Let's say it goes really poorly. A couple of key injuries and suddenly, you know, it's the complete opposite of uh, a 12 and four in which the end of that season, what will this, what will the city just be thinking about all over again? It was like, oh, we lost our shot. Yeah, um, the double doink. Um, and part of that is like, like Phil Sims or whoever was, you know, narrating that game, commenting on that game, like just finding just a brilliant way to summarize the play. Like oh, that, that is part of. There's no way Sims is going to find a brilliant way. You're right. To you're right. You're right. Um, but that's like a huge part of like why it captured like a, a narrative was like not just of how uh, 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 explosive it was in the moment, but because it had like a catchy name to go with it. But I'm so curious just to like. And I'm trying to think of like other teams that have had similar moments where fluky plays end up defining their identity in a way that was like really harmful to like their ability to pivot from that in the future. The Browns? Yeah. Browns. Like there's the butt fumble, the Browns. Yeah, okay. um, I'm, I'm trying to think of like plays outside of like, well, even like this recent, uh, like this isn't like probably like franchise defining, but like in the, the NBA playoffs this season, like what was, uh, there was that like, that ball that like it was the game seven of one of the playoff series and like the ball that like bounced off of like oh, the yeah, rim yeah, like yeah, six yeah. times um, before the, it went the in. Sixers. Um yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh um, Joel Embiid was trying to And the Raptors, right? Yeah, yeah. It was it decided who was gonna go to the finals. And Joel Embiid was uh covering um Oh gosh. Austin, my brain just blanked. Just I forget to too, dude. I because my head is now thinking of other basketball stuff, and specifically was thinking about the J.R. Smith moment last year. Yeah, or whatever, yes. Which is yes. which is which did consume? Yeah, you know. Which I don't think maybe that specific single moment led to LeBron leaving, <laughs> but <laughs> it would would it have made me leave. Yes. <laughs> it be, and it became a meme. Yeah, it became a meme. Like it, and, it, and, it did, yeah. And, 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 and because and I and I wonder like part of what I, I wonder feeds into this culturally for sports is because of social media, because we have younger players, younger coaches who are more aware of the ecosystem around them in which they are they know what people are talking mm-hmm. about. They respond to what people are talking about, maybe in a way that wasn't necessarily 
as true when like the write-ups about like the result of a game show up in the paper the next day as opposed you know you're talking reporters but it's different than going on social media and then suddenly right. seeing you know J.R. Smith with his arms outstretched and like LeBron pointing his hands over yeah. wondering why he didn't understand that they what didn't have a timeout and out these players inhabit that, that ecosystem they're young enough now yeah. that, that that they do so like I mean what does Kevin Durant look like if he never saw Twitter Right. Like what what is the arc of his career and mentality as a a, a great talent in the NBA uh, if he just doesn't have access to social media? Arguably, maybe better social media, the biggest sports curse there is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I don't know. It's it's interesting. I'm curious. Like, I'm very curious to see how uh, Pinero does for the Bears. He's basically he's locked on the job now. Right. Like they're not going to try to do a last minute signing. There, so in the as I was sorting through the Andrew Luck stuff, um, I also saw that he was like four for four uh, in that preseason game, including oh my God. just a just a beautiful <laughs> fifty eight yard bomb in which I sent the, I sent the video to to, to Rob because I was like Rob, like I can't tell if this means I should be worried about this team or I think it's beautiful and they're fun and they're they're like ready for anything when he hits this 58-yard bomb and it was tied to there's a Twitter account that um takes big moments in games and uh, uh attaches the uh Titanic uh, my heart will go on music to it like the moment like it soars where like the team knows that they've won and he goes into reti- he, he does this for the NFL and this Twitter account like goes into retirement like during the offseason and then comes back and he came out of retirement to do this one where Eddie Pinheiro hits this 50 year bomb because the entire team comes off the sidelines like they're going to the Super Bowl and it's a third preseason game where none of the starters are playing and everyone is just losing their minds on the sidelines and it's like that seems like a fun team but also maybe they're all broken <laughs> yeah um you have to be a little bit broken to love this game and uh to love this game yeah that's, that's true. true that is true it is it is it, you have to there's such a deep compartmentalization that has to happen um to find the things that you find beautiful about it while also acknowledging how much of it is so deeply ugly all right, well, that will do it for this episode of Waypoints. Our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you? At Patrick Klepek. Austin. Uh, I'm at Austin underscore Walker. Also, just a heads up that I'm going to be taking another little vacation uh, for the next couple of weeks. So I will not be on pods uh, for the, until September. Until I think it's going to be timed out to exactly when Damon X Machina comes out. I'm coming back with the robots, baby. Wow. And the robots That's, are back. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes. Wow. What a coincidence. Yeah, I li- that is. just lined up that way, Patrick. Those uh-huh, are the police uh-huh. coming for me Did for it? my lies. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's actually an ambulance coming for me because my love of mechs has made my heart so big. Get on the uh, mech review assignment, Austin, and Rob will have to do it. Uh, <laughs> please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing. I think we're a five-star podcast, but it's not for me to say. The power's in your hands. We'll be back again with Waypoint Radio on Friday. Until then, do not give in to astonishment.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. All right. All right. That felt good. That was fun. That was was very fun. Waypoints is good, man. I like it. God damn it. I also like it, Rob. <laughs> hey, everybody. Kato here. Just wanted to give you a quick warning, a uh, content warning for the next bit here. They talk about uh, bugs, specifically spiders and wasps. So if you uh, have any issues with that, you can easily stop now. There's nothing else after the bug talk. So other than that, enjoy. Uh, I got rid of it one time and he just brought it back three days later. Like, just like, just like kind of like shoved something down there. I was like, just go make it somewhere else. Just like go like 10 feet higher. Nope. Loves that spot behind the ring doorbell. (laughs) This is my house. (laughs) And I looked over one time and like, he's so big. He scuttled out of the way when I saw him. And it was just like, I know you're probably scared of me, but I cannot explain to you that I am scared of you. We need, I need a spider. A sp- there's a spider hiding oh, the made of empire behind my <laughs> ring doorbell. Nah. And if there's a way, I, I have no way to tell, communicate to the spider. You have until the the doorbell runs out of battery. Like we don't have it connected to like the electricity. Sure. It has to be like charged every six months. So I think it's got like another month or two before I'm gonna have to flush them out. I'm not gonna kill them, <laughs> but I am gonna have to like dump some water back there and like. Hey, how move long? Them out of the way. How long do spiders live for? Is there? A, do we know? Huh. Probably a long. Probably. I feel like <laughs> do it's, we? It feels like. Uh, it feels like it's a while. Maybe. I think science knows. Science probably knows that. You think it's like years? It's years. It's probably years, right? Some of these live for years. How long? How long do spiders live? It depends on the spider. Really? Answer yeah, <laughs> forever. They well, never die. Goliath <laughs> bird eaters live for fifteen to twenty. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why I searched off. that because I should have known there were going to be images. And yeah. I, so <laughs> click, click. I'm gone. That just Most, took years off my life looking at that. Most UK spiders live for around a year, but the females of some species can uh, live for up to two or three years, especially if they live indoors. I put I put spiders live question mark into Google and just got a bunch of system of a down videos. Great. Good. Spiders wow. live. Live. What you found. Uh-huh. <laughs> the oldest recorded spider in the world was an Australian trapdoor spider, which yep. lived to the ripe old age of 43. I read about being, that spider. Before being killed by a wasp. Oh, they didn't even could have lived forever if that wasp Fuck. hadn't showed up. You know what? God. All praise to the wasp. I read shout out to, I never shout thought I'd say no. it. Shout out to the wasp. <laughs> no, that wasp committed a murder. That wasp <laughs> saved my life. <laughs> that spider was going to come and get me. I know it. Well, her children are still there. Just Fuck. <laughs> and they've heard. Um, and they're listeners. Like, the reason, so the reason that spider's lifespan is so well documented is because biologists were visiting that site regularly and sort of, like, marked the different 
basically like they don't I, I think if memory serves once they like kind of have their hole that's their hole and they don't just like use someone else's hole so <laughs> sure. once the spider builds its den it's kind of like set and in place and they just kept finding like damn she's still in there she's still preying on things um and actually the the first scientist who studied her i think died before the spider did <laughs> God. Like it was the uh, under, it was the graduate student uh, who studied who like wrote the obit for the spider who was like well so this thing I studied as like a young scientist uh, finally passed away so let me tell you about her <laughs> <laughs> sounds That's like you're so uh, gonna have a spider neighbor for a while Patrick no i won't i, <laughs> no, I mean i can i don't want to kick him out of the house i just need him to move down the block <laughs> like on See, the house in terms of my if my house is a neighborhood i need him to just go one block over i need to gentrify the situation near the ring <laughs> thing so i could so i could charge it i'm sorry it's i, I feel bad about it but it's it's gotta happen yeah i All need more right. spiders outside my windows too many we bugs? Got, like, river bugs coming that's in. fine the, the, and i got a big ass spider web right behind me here like right outside my door i never go out there that's fine it's good it's a it's a patio get out of here that's where they belong you should just transplant it but that would mean touching it my wife might do that actually she's she's <laughs> put it in a jar here. and then like, bring I, it around I call her, but dude it moves so fast like this is this boy he big he move okay I don't know if he attack, but I don't want to. I don't want to tempt it. Tempt you don't want to know. Another thing right. you can do is put a little bit of dish soap in a spray bottle with water, mostly water, with like a little bit, a couple drops of dish soap. What does that do? It makes it sticky, for Ooh. but temporarily, so you can like spray them, and they they can't run really fast, and you can catch them easy. Yeah, that's I don't. That's, no, <laughs> that doesn't. <laughs> Uh, that, <laughs> I did it. I did it to a wasp when I was out. I was sure, that cabin. makes sense. That but makes sense. The wasp was just like, I don't know where to go. Uh, we good? We want to do a clap? Sure. Yeah, we should do a clap. Y'all should clap. Uh, 40, 44. All right. Perfect. It sounded really good to me, yeah. Yeah. All right. And, uh, it's wild. Like, in the basement, there is always a lot of lag and delay when I'm recording from, from Vice. Here, in my own apartment, it feels like we're all synced up. And it's just like, did they? is there really, like, a full second and a half of lag because of the Vice, like, firewall? And I think there might be. I think there is, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, let me just pull this up real quick. Da -da -da. All right, cool. Ready to dive in? Let's do it. <laughs> 